You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we'll be discussing the case of Anthony Adams, the Quiet Warrior. Welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. How are you? I just feel like this past weekend we have been slammed with holidays. We had Chinese New Year on Friday, Valentine's Day on Sunday, President's Day was yesterday, and as you are listening today, it is Mardi Gras, so don't let me stop the party from rolling. Um, In the spirit of parties, I do have a big announcement to make. So over the weekend, I got a Valentine's Day gift from Brian. It was something completely unexpected. Um, Basically, he designed an entire website for me and essentially for all of us. Um, It's mysterystillunsolved.com. It's live. It's not completely finished, but it is live. So you can go there right now and listen to and download episodes there. Um, We're also going to figure out how to get a newsletter sent out to you guys that you guys can sign up for and get like bi-weekly um, little newsletters from me. Um, be sure to check it out. And while you're at it, make sure that you follow us on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. There you can take our quizzes and polls, chat with each other, comment on the cases, make case suggestions. It's a grand old time over there. Trust me, you don't want to miss out. Today we are going to be covering a case that you most likely will not know anything about. Um, It is a Salt Lake City, Utah case, but I guarantee that there are actually not very many people in Utah who know it either unless they were around and kicking it in the 1970s. Um, It is considered an old-timey case. It's not too old-timey because it's 1970, not 1870, but I don't know. I just feel like the 70s is like a completely different world. They didn't have tamper-proof packaging yet, which we learned from the Tylenol murder case a few weeks ago. There was no internet, which I literally can't even imagine a life without internet because I don't even think I was alive when that happened. Um, The Bee Gees were killing it big time. It was a completely different world. This case, though, is about a man named Anthony Adams. Anthony was a 25-year-old city bus driver. On November 6, 1978, Anthony's nude, maimed body was found in his Avenue's apartment, crumpled up against the radiator, which the Avenue's now, I don't know how it was back in the 70s, but the Avenue's now is kind of like a prestigious place. It's where like a lot of wealthy and prominent people live. I don't know if, if it's always been that way or if it was a case of like gentrifying or something, but Now it's like a really expensive, prominent, wealthy place to live. Uh, The slaying was incredibly brutal. Anthony had been stabbed five times in the neck and twice in the chest. It was believed by the medical examiner at the time that Anthony had, in fact, been murdered on November 3rd. And his employer can confirm this because they said that Anthony had left work a little bit early on Friday because he had a dentist appointment. He was needing to have a tooth extracted and he wanted to take the rest of the weekend off and recuperate 
obviously he was going to be on some heavy painkillers um, because of this procedure. And if you drive a bus for a living, then you can't really work when you're on painkillers. Um, he also had a rally on Sunday that he was really, really excited for. So he was taking the opportunity to rest up so that he would be um, able to go to that. Um, but on Sunday, he never showed for the rally. But why? Why would somebody want to kill Anthony Adams? Bob Waldrop, a reverend who knew Anthony well through his work at the Metropolitan Community Church in Salt Lake City, doesn't claim to know the exact answer, but he does have some very interesting insights. He claims that Tony, which is the which is a nickname for Anthony, had three strikes against him. One, Anthony was black. Two, Anthony was gay. And three, Anthony was a socialist. These are three things that we wouldn't really bat an eye at today, but back in the late 70s, oh boy, this made Anthony a rich target. As a recap, homosexuality had just been removed from the American Psychiatric Association as a clinical mental illness in 1974, just four years before Anthony's murder. This, combined with the three aforementioned strikes, makes Anthony's case even more complicated because now police have to figure out, was this a hate crime? Was this a political crime? Was it a crime of passion? Or could it have just been a crime of opportunity perpetuated by someone who didn't even know Anthony well. Perhaps Tony just happened to be at his apartment at the wrong time. Could Anthony have brought somebody back to his apartment and just simply trusted the wrong person? These are the questions that are swirling around. Before Anthony's senseless death, he had been involved and looked up at or look up to in many different activist groups. So not only was Anthony currently working for the Socialist Workers Party, but he was also a member of the NAACP. He protested on behalf of gay rights and put pressure on the university in the area to allot some of their stock to companies that operated in South Africa during the apartheid years. Um, those who knew Anthony well and were similarly involved in those different social circles have always felt that Anthony's murder was not investigated thoroughly enough. A lot of people felt the police were writing off Anthony's death because they, for whatever reason, considered Anthony to be less than because of his lifestyle and the groups he chose to associate with. In the late 70s, there wasn't a huge gay community in Utah's capital, but there was still a big presence. Much of the community resides, um, much of the gay community at the time resided where the Vivint Arena now sits. So if you're a Utah local where the Vivint Arena is, that's where kind of like all the gay bars and bathhouses and like a strip club, that's where it was. Um, the strip, there was actually like a nudist strip, which shocked me <laughs> and they actually called it bare ass beach and this is news to me i literally never knew that this was a part of salt lake city's history it's very interesting to me especially since that section of the city is very very close to the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints headquarters and i just to think of those two things in the same place is just very interesting to me <laughs> Much like uh, the rest of the United States, Utah in the 1970s was under 
outgoing uh, change, like a social change. People who were more traditional and conservative felt that their values were being threatened, and this made them feel extremely uncomfortable. I feel like in Utah especially, there were simply just more people holding on to these traditional values. Um, So those people with the traditional values were in the majority. So there was a lot of pushback on both sides here. During my research, I came upon an article written shortly after the death of Anthony Adams. This article is really short, but I'm going to summarize it for you anyways. Um, First off, the name of the article is... Gays claim lack of protection, which I think just by the title alone shows us how far we have come. I mean, a little on the head with that subject line, don't you think? The article essentially talks about how gay rights leaders and civil civil libertarians appealed to the Salt Lake City Police Department and asked for more vigorous protection in the general atmosphere of violence in the community against gay people. The groups opposing the police department asserted that they did not feel that the police were being sensitive to their needs of being protected from harassment and violence. Reverend Robert Waldrop, who we spoke about earlier, was there and he said that he did not feel that Anthony's death was being investigated thoroughly enough. He claims that he himself had been the recipient of 22 death threats in the last two years. Um, He argued that, quote, sickos in the community know that the police are turning a blind eye when members of the gay community are assaulted and killed, and they are using that knowledge to their advantage, essentially making anyone part of or heavily involved in the community the perfect target for these crimes. The chief of police at the time, Chief Willoughby, claims that he had no previous knowledge. He literally said he had no idea that anyone in the gay community had this type of feeling or complaints against law enforcement. He said that he wished that people would have called him to let him know, which I'm like, okay, really? That's the story you're sticking with? Okay. All right. I mean, even if he wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and pretend like he really had no idea... You know now, buddy. So let's get to work. And he kind of does. Willoughby seems um, aware that there could potentially be messages that might have been given but not actually given to him, kind of like stalled or halted on their way to him. So he tells members of the community to deal with him directly from now on, either by calling him directly or setting up a in-person meeting with him. Even though Anthony had been so open about his support of gay rights, he had not yet felt comfortable enough to be openly gay. Many people very close to him had not even known that he was a homosexual. It is for this very reason why Ron Millard, the detective who spent the most time pursuing this case, says it has been so difficult to get to the bottom of what happened to Anthony Adams that fateful night. Detective Millard said investigating Anthony was just complete and utter chaos. For starters, Millard had not been with the investigation since the beginning. He was actually assigned the case halfway through because two of his colleagues resigned from the case without any explanation. They wouldn't even really talk to Millard, and so Millard was forced to start 
from scratch, essentially, which is difficult because witnesses get annoyed that they have to talk to another detective when they've already talked to a detective. So they're less willing to cooperate. And also, I mean, time has passed and people's memories are not as good as they might have been right after the murder. Millard continues, quote, oh, and I should also note that I'm getting the majority of this information from a wonderfully thorough article that I found on the Salt Lake Tribune, Salt Lake Tribune's website. If you're interested in learning more about this case, I would highly recommend this two-part article, and I will for sure post the link in the show notes. Anyway, Millard continues that, quote, the Adams case was particularly frustrating because the victim's life was so compartmentalized. He was active in so many different groups, but he only showed select aspects of himself to each group. Even people who were extremely close to him had no idea about his other interests. Millard and all of us, I'm sure, can only speculate, but the car- the compartment. Eh, I can't say this word, compartment, compartmentalization of Anthony's life more than certainly had a lot to do with the closed nature of the gay community at the time. Millard says, today you don't have that same secrecy and stigma that gay people had to deal with back then. I know that we have a lot more work to do when it comes to discrimination and hate based solely on homosexuality. Um, the fight for LGBTQ plus is far from over, but I am grateful that things do seem to be getting better, question mark, I think, outside of maybe certain rural communities. I feel like it has become a safer place for LGBTQ plus people, but like I said, there's certainly more work to be done. In fact, okay, this is a crazy thing that I just learned and I was so shocked. Did you know that the average life expectancy of a black transgendered woman, so for those who are not up to date on the preferred terms and pronouns, this would be a black person who was assigned male at birth who believes wholeheartedly in their soul that they are in fact female. That's what a black transgendered woman is. Um, did you know that they have a life expectancy of 30 years? 30 years! That's how old I am. I'd like to say that that's frightfully young. Um, I was so taken aback when I read that statistic. There are many variables that account to the life expectancy being so low. One is that it's harder for them to find consistent work. So they have a hard time supporting themselves. Uh, two, they are the number one target of all LGBTQ plus hate crimes. And many police departments are unfortunately looking the other way. Um, they also, uh, because they're not getting enough work, they have, they don't have um, as much access to quality health care. And so when they get sick, it's not really taken care of properly. Um, but yeah, this is a devastating statistic that I was not aware of until maybe within like the last six months. And there, so I know that there is a ton of work that needs to be done in correcting this. I think it's a horrible issue. Back to Anthony. Regardless of what the motivation behind Anthony's murder was, whatever the reason, Anthony's bright life and bright future was taken too soon and his death cast a dark shadow in the Salt Lake City gay community. Okay, 
Now let's start looking into possible motives that detectives were looking into as the cause of Anthony Adams' death. Millard, this is the detective who spent the most time on the case, claims he never he never suspected that the Adams slaying was a hate crime or politically or racially motivated. Millard believes it was a bar pickup turned murder. He believes this based on multiple witnesses' reports that claim that they saw Anthony um, on Friday um, at a local tavern called the Sun Tavern and that he seemed to be enjoying the company of a man. The man was described as Caucasian with long dark hair, a mustache, and a short beard. Again, Millard started the investigation halfway through, so the original scene had already been cleared by the first set of detectives. Nonetheless, while Millard looked through some of Anthony's personal effects within the apartment, he found what appeared to be a blood-stained knife inside of a utensil drawer. He believes that this could have been a possible second murder weapon. Um, in the bedroom, there was a butcher knife that was recovered inside a pile of clothes um, that had blood on it by the first set of detectives, and that knife is the one believed to have been the weapon that actually killed Anthony. Millard continues that if this had been a premeditated murder, the suspect would have most likely brought their own weapon to the apartment. It is for these reasons why Millard has always theorized that this crime was a crime of passion or opportunity. Millard is kind of letting his 1970s theologies fly in this next breath as he claims that it is common knowledge that domestic disputes against gay male couples turn violent so he's basically saying that everybody knows that like gay couples are violent which to that i say miller tell us how you really feel this view was in total opposition of the gay activist groups of the time no they did not deny the fact that there was a lot of violence within the gay community but they were adamant that the violence was not being perpetuated by their own it was violence against the community happening to them not by them they asserted that they were being harassed, attacked, and murdered by individuals who simply hated them for the way in which they conducted their lives. Reverend Waldrop feared that the homosexual community in Salt Lake City was facing an L.A.-type slasher because two men had been murdered in a short amount of time. And that for, those, and that for many people in the community, um, they had been harassed and assaulted amongst getting death threats. Chief Willoughby made no promises to up the police force and popular hangout places for gay individuals, but he did assure that his department would work just as hard to investigate murders in the gay community as any other. Hmm. We'll see. It should be noted that a few weeks later, police visited a socialist workers' party attorney, with a sketch of a potential suspect in another murder that they felt might be related to Anthony's. The attorney said that he did not recognize the sketch as someone being associated with their party. Upon that revelation, police pressed for a full membership list of the Socialist Workers Party under the guise that they wanted to have the opportunity to interview all of the members in person to see if the sketch looked familiar to anyone else. The attorney wasn't falling for this, though. After continuing to face resistance from the officers after he offered to make copies of the sketch and circulate it at the next meeting, 
the police officers were none too pleased. The attorney knew in that moment that it was all just a ruse to get access to the membership list. He knew that the officers planned to visit these members on the list at their place of employment and probably get them fired from their jobs. The attorney says they were just trying to figure out a way to get us to shut up. A few months after the slaying, Anthony's brother, Keith, recalls driving to the police department to get an update on Anthony's case. Um, He had tried previously, calling several times, and all of his calls had gone unreturned. When checking in with the clerk, the clerk yelled to another officer across the office. This is really bad, so I'm not going to say the word. He said, you know that dead f-word that's derogatory towards gay men his brother is here oh my gosh that is utterly despicable can you imagine being keith you're just there to get an update on your brother and you hear this being said about him i would have no trust i would have no trust and i have no words either For years after the murder of Anthony Adams, the progress and activism within the Salt Lake City community halted. In the early 80s, Michael Aaron, a gay rights activist at the time, recalled trying so hard to enlist older gay residents to get involved in protests and conferences, and he was told by them, don't rock the boat. Time and time again, Michael would be told, we're getting killed and the cops don't care before those men would um, just close the door on his face. The older gay residents of Salt Lake City were scared, and while they certainly wanted things to change, they also worried about their safety. Some might have become discouraged by this setback, but not Aaron. That sense of fear and frustration only motivated Aaron to help more accurately document hate crimes against members of the gay community because at the time, less than half the attacks and harassment were being reported to police, and of those that were being reported to police, half of those were being looked in and taken seriously. In the 90s, a bill was eventually passed, but even to this day, it's still an uphill battle to get hate crime laws taken more seriously. There have been many, many efforts, but for whatever reason, they continue to be rejected. Former detective Corden Parks, who recently retired from the cold case division, said he is amazed by the police work of Officer Millard, who was the original investigator. Um, Corden says um, it was much harder to do police work back then. Not only did Millard have 400 other cases assigned to him at the time of Anthony Adams' death because the Salt Lake City Police Department was incredibly underfunded and understaffed, um, but there were also not any of the technological advancements that we rely on so heavily today. He said even with those hindrances, Parks says that Millard left no rock unturned. Apparently, Millard's opinion of the case matched up with Anthony's family and close friends who also did not believe that the crime had been politically motivated, which, I don't know, some cuckoos in the media were claiming that because he was working for this guy who was running for office in the Socialist Party that that Anthony had been killed. But I'm like, if you want to do a politically motivated crime, then, like, wouldn't you assassinate the person running, not, like, just some guy that was helping I don't know. Those are just my thoughts. Parks claims that there was no way someone took Anthony out 
simply because he belonged to the socialist group. Anthony wasn't running for political office. He wasn't even that well connected in the political in the political community or even the gay community for that matter. Parks agrees with Millard's theory that this was a crime of opportunity, likely perpetuated by a person or a group of people who might have targeted gay individuals as vulnerable targets for robbery. Um, He said it was most likely street kids looking for an easy way to make money. In recent years, the Salt Lake City Police Department agreed to release some previously sealed information. A lead they believe may be relevant in solving Anthony Adams' case after all these years. Their person of interest, a woman by the name of Mickey Ann Henson. Henson was officially classified as a person of interest in 2012 after her death um, based on a single fingerprint that of hers that was found in Adam's apartment. Police know little about her except that in the late 70s, Mickey was a drug user. Um, She was a escort and she was suspected in associating with a group well known for robbing gay people. But police were dumbfounded why a female escort's fingerprint, what would it be doing in the apartment of a gay man? In fact, for a time, Retired Detective Park wondered if Adams was actually even gay. Because as we all know, gay men are prohibited from socializing with women. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. Hey, I don't make the rules. This just goes to show how people thought back in the day. There are plenty of reasons why there might be a female's fingerprint in a gay man's apartment. Maybe they're friends? Maybe Anthony helped her out at one point in time. I mean, obviously, yeah, maybe she could be the murderer. But seriously, guys, use your brain. Just because there's a girl's fingerprint in a gay man's apartment doesn't mean he's not gay. (sighs) The Salt Lake City Police Department thought about releasing other portions of the report on why they felt so strongly that Mickey might be responsible. But after the journalism project reviewed um, the autopsy file, they decided that it would be best to continue to keep these pieces of information confidential for now. Um, They believe that those pieces um, were considered guilty knowledge, so something only the perpetrator themselves would know. So they just simply could not risk jeopardizing the case by disclosing these very important details, Um, except that they did say that they have reason to um, believe that Anthony may have been about to become intimate with someone just before he was stabbed to death they didn't elaborate but they just said that like that's their conjecture parks wonders if adam was possibly lured into a situation where he became naked and therefore vulnerable only to have henson or perhaps a male accomplice attempt a robbery that went horribly wrong and i don't know i mean this isn't too out of left field either there are a ton of cases Jeffrey Dahmer, most notably, of men picking up other men from a bar and taking them home um, under the ruse of, like, being intimate to get that person vulnerable and basically put them in a very precarious situation, which would make it easier for them to be manipulated and murdered. That was Jeffrey Dahmer's MO to AT. And although Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested in 1991 and this happened in 1978, I don't think it's too far-fetched to think that Jeffrey Dahmer probably wasn't the first person to come up with this kind of scheme. 
Mickey Henson's sister, Cindy, says that at one point, she was visiting Mickey. Um, she lived out of town, so she came into Salt Lake to visit with Mickey, and some of Mickey's friends stopped by. These friends told Henson that they were going to roll a F-word that's derogatory towards gay men. Um, but we have to remember that that word, um, before it was used as a derogatory word for homosexual men, um, it is also a word that is used to describe a cigarette. And so maybe that's what they were talking about. I don't know. So it seemed to Cindy that this is something interesting of note. She doesn't know which way they were using that word, but she just said that she remembers hearing that phrase come out of uh, Mickey's friend's mouth. But Cindy says that she just cannot believe that her sister would have been involved. She says that Mickey was a warm and compassionate person, especially when she was younger. In the same breath, however, Cindy confirms that yes, Mickey was a wild child who ran away at the age of, drumroll please, 11. To that I say, girl, running away at 11 will make you grow up real fast. You have to become so street smart to survive that coupled with heavy drug use and addiction and prostitution is a perfect recipe for disaster. The girl you knew before age 11 was probably nothing but a distant memory. Mickey most likely had changed. How could you not change under those circumstances? But Cindy insists that Mickey had family living in Salt Lake. She wasn't completely and totally on her own. She said that she had people who loved her. Unfortunately, love does not a murder undo. Even Ted Bundy had people who loved him. Cindy also disagrees with the police's theory that Henson would be involved in targeting gay men because, plot twist, Mickey was bisexual. And at the time of Adam's killing, Mickey had a girlfriend. Cindy believes because Mickey was bisexual, she would not have allowed her friends to harm anyone in the gay community. She says Mickey would have for sure stood up for them. And while that may be true, it does maybe explain why her fingerprints might have been in Anthony's apartment. If they were both part of the gay scene in Salt Lake City, they might have known each other or had a mutual acquaintance. Mickey was bisexual. Is it possible that Anthony was also? These are questions we just don't know the answers to because Anthony was so secretive about this aspect of his life. Something interesting to know, though, is that Mickey was involved in another high-profile murder in the 80s. Apparently, she had been at Liberty Park um, trying to score a John, I guess, hooking when she was solicited for sex by a man named Joseph Paul Franklin. She turned Franklin down because she was getting some really bad vibes from him. Um, and later on that night, Franklin, that creepy man, gunned down two innocent black men who were just out jogging. She testified in a court of law against Franklin in state and federal trials, um, although she had a ton of reservations about it because she was so afraid um, for her life. Um, which to me, I feel like it begs the question if Mickey was willing to testify about this double murder, this crime involving Franklin, what would have stopped her from doing the exact same for Anthony Adams if she had known anything about it? 
I think that even though her actions may not have always reflected it, Mickey, I feel like she had a strong moral compass. She risked her life, or she believed she was risking her life to testify against a double murderer, and she successfully got him thrown in jail. And this was only a few years after Anthony's death. I don't know. It just doesn't add up for me. There are also theories that this may have something to do with a charge that Adams had just gotten out of. Apparently, Adams, um, Anthony, had written his phone number on a couple of bathroom stalls at bars, and I guess some undercover vice officers had called him um, soliciting a hookup at a downtown hotel. When Anthony arrived, he was busted, and he was ready to stand trial when the case was unexpectedly dismissed less than a week before his death. This case is a tricky one because there is a lot of moving parts to this whole thing. Any one of these could be the motive or reason behind Anthony's murder. Some socialist workers of the party of Utah um, believe that the murder could have been perpetuated by vice officers who were attempting to get Adams to become a confidential informant who would agree to spy on the activist groups of which he was a part. They believe Anthony refused to participate and because of this, perhaps he was eliminated. Now, they believe that the police have been covering this up for these past 40 years. I don't know. It's an interesting theory, I think. What do you guys think? The late 70s was certainly a juxtaposition. There were blatant vibes of anything is possible. I mean, the women's liberation movement was going on. The gay rights movement was going on. The Vietnam War was ending. And the protests that were that people were doing were actually working. Um, the village people were on the radio. And people from all over the country loved the village people. So... All types of gay art form and talent was like taking over America at the time. But Reverend Waldrop remembers that there also was an underlying sense of danger, particularly in Salt Lake City. Um, he is now a resident of Oklahoma, uh, but the former minister remembers distributing flyers around uh, Salt Lake City for his gay-friendly church outside of Sun Tavern, and this is the same tavern that Anthony had been seen at on the Friday of his murder, uh, when a car full of men pulled up alongside him. The reverend approached the men with his usual greeting, Jesus loves you, here's a flyer about our church, but as Waldrop got closer to the vehicle, he could see that each man was clutching a baseball bat in their hand. Waldrop believes that his clergy garb spooked the men and they sped, sped away real quick. Uh, many people who worked with Anthony said that when Anthony expressed his views, he always did so in a, quote, non-strident and confident manner, but was always conversational. He was a quiet warrior, end quote. We haven't really talked a lot about Anthony, so I want to make sure that I'm giving him the recognition that I feel like he deserves. So Anthony was born on July 30th, 1953. Adams was not born in radical politics. He was simply a boy who had moved to Salt Lake City from Baltimore with his family when he was young. His family, um, they were devout Catholics. 
Anthony attended Judge Memorial High School and was heavily involved in student life. He was an honor roll student. He was active in science debate and chess clubs. Uh, He also played on the soccer team, and he was on the staff of his school newspaper. He valued education, and he had extraordinary drive, which he probably acquired by witnessing his mother attend college in the 1940s despite what I'm assuming many obstacles dealing with racial discrimination. Since childhood, Anthony had wrestled with how to be gay and a man of faith, which is why he was so happy when he found Waldrop's uh, Metropolitan Community Church, which preached that Christ's love and homosexuality were not mutually exclusive. The church was also heavily involved in social reform, and this is how Anthony came to be so involved in the Socialist Workers' Party and the many protests that he participated in. One of these protests was a candlelight vigil spotlighting a murdered man. Um, Anthony was there, and while the coalition's protest was peaceful, the reaction by the public was not. Uh, The crowd was tear-gassed in the middle of their vigil. The Sunday after Anthony was murdered, he didn't show up for a rally. His friend Bach went to check on him as it was not a rally he believed Anthony would have missed for the world. Bach found the apartment door ajar. The report claims that he entered and recalls it being deathly still and quiet. Then he was confronted with the unfortunate image of his friend, dead, having been stabbed multiple times, his mouth was open and he was not breathing. It has been just over 40 years, and we still don't have the answers we need to solve the death of Anthony Adams. But we, but what we do know is that there is a possibility that two knives were used in the murder, which means that there were either two assailants or a single assailant who used two weapons. There are some troubling discrepancies, though, when it comes to the police. For starters, the knives supposedly used in the murder are missing. The original detective said that there was damage on the door, which indicated someone had kicked the door down. But Millard, the detective who took over when the original detectives pieced out, said that the damage seemed old and believed that the damage predated the murder. Police were unaware, until 2012, that Bill Woodbury, Adam's boyfriend at the time, was actually the one who discovered Anthony's dead body and not Bach. Bach was there at the time that Anthony was discovered, but he wasn't alone. The Reverend Bach and Woodbury had all gone to Anthony's apartment together after the rally. They claimed that they could not get into the apartment, so Woodbury broke in through a window and he came upon the scene first. This contradicts the police findings in the police report that the apartment door was ajar. If the door had been ajar, then why had the three men not been able to get in? Also, the police report only has Bach as the one who discovered Anthony. It doesn't even mention the reverend or Anthony's boyfriend at all. The violence against the homosexual community in Salt Lake City did not stop with Anthony, unfortunately. Um, Three weeks later, another gay man in Salt Lake City named Doug Coleman was shot to death only a few blocks away from Anthony's apartment, and a month or two later, Mano Ulibari, a lesbian, was raped and murdered in her apartment. Coleman's murder was found and taken to a mental institution um, until their subsequent death, so he's no longer alive. It's unknown if Coleman's murder was the same as Anthony's, and it doesn't seem like police at the time made any real 
inquiries to see if the two crimes were related besides the fact that they had both happened in this to the same demographic and only in like a close proximity they were only blocks away from each other this seems like such an elementary error to me it also seems like much more than a coincidence that of all the cases that occurred from 1970 to 1984 only three cases are noted as missing a key piece of evidence Want to take a guess as to which cases? The Adams killing, the slaying of Doug Coleman, and the rape and murder of, of Ulibari. Coincidence that all three of these murders occurred to gay people and in such a short amount of time? I am prone to think not. The Salt Lake City Police Department blamed this um, missing evidence on the University of Utah's toxicology lab, who they claimed held on to their physical evidence. But Brian Finkel disputes this, saying the only evidence they ever had access to from the police department was the evidence that needed toxicology work done, such as testing a liver for alcohol or checking blood samples for illicit drugs. Brian Finkel is adamant that knives and other weapons were never stored there. So to this day, there is still no idea where this missing evidence is, and it just seems like it will be a never-ending blame game between the police department and the toxicology lab. Kara Porter with the Utah Cold Case Coalition says these kinds of problems are exactly why her organization was formed. The group is pushing to get more funding and attention into cold case investigations, and in the 2018 legislation, Eh, I can't talk. Legislative session successfully pushed a bill to create a centralized cold case database for the state. The organization also offers $3,000 for tips that help solve cold cases and provides grants to law enforcement. Nationwide, Porter said, a lot of evidence exists from the 70s, 80s, and even the 90s. A lot of that has never been run through any kind of database. No matter how old a crime, um, a crime of violence still haunts the surviving loved ones. And for that matter, police officers who worked the cases. Porter says her coalition can bring resources to bear, whether it's paying for a DNA test or having an expert do ballistics on old shell casings. She says if police don't have the resources, they should at least reach out to us. If they need $1,000 for a photographer to come out and take photos of a bullet casing for the day, email her and you'll have, you'll have it in 24 hours. So they're very willing to help. Porter says the coalition doesn't aim to second-guess law enforcement, rather to aid in cold case investigations. But the indication that police don't know what evidence they have is troublesome to her. She says if someone is not aware of what evidence is in their cold case files, that would suggest to me that they are not actively working the case. While I hope that one day Anthony Adams, along with the cases of Doug Coleman and Ulibari, find resolution, I have my serious doubts and reservations. Without evidence, DNA samples, and the deaths of three of the prime suspects, including Mickey Henson, Anthony's boyfriend at the time, and the man who it was believed killed Douglas, it would take nothing short of a full confession to apprehend the person responsible. But this is why we cover these cases on this podcast. We need to warm up 
these cold cases so that they can one day be solved without this spotlight, without the spotlight of other podcasters and media um, people, the possibility that the case will ever be solved is slim. But maybe, just maybe, there's someone out there listening who remembers that weekend back in 1978. Maybe they saw something or they heard something that could help solve this case from over 40 years ago. If you have information about the missing evidence or about a Salt Lake City cold case, please call dispatch at 801-799-3000 and ask to speak with the Homicide Division. You can leave a tip and remain anonymous if you want to. And that's the case of Anthony Adams, the quiet warrior. What do you make of it? Do you think the crime was racially, politically motivated? Was it a hate crime? Was it a crime of passion or opportunity? Do you think Mickey Henson, the boyfriend or the man sent to the mental institution, are responsible? Do you think the police are attempting to cover up something? Or do you think that they did the best that they could with the resources that they had available? It seems obvious to me, considering the many, many murders of people within the LGBTQ plus community in Salt Lake City in the months before, during, and after Anthony's death, that there was a killer, or killers, on the hunt, searching, targeting gay people. The article that I relied on heavily today mentioned only three murders, but I learned in a separate article that there was upwards of 10 to 12 murders of members of the gay community that were murdered from December 1977 to February 1979. And then the murders stopped for a time. But they didn't stop totally because in 1982, another gay man was found murdered in his apartment with similar wounds, similar MO. Uh, The man had inflicted stab wounds to his head, neck, and chest, just like Anthony Adams. This case that involved that man in 1972, it was solved, but unfortunately it was solved too late. The person responsible died in a car accident in 2005 before even being suspected of this crime. Is it possible that that man was the one responsible for all of the deaths and that's why the death stopped in 1982 with that particular MO? Who knows? That's the unfortunate thing about old cases. Many witnesses and suspects have since passed on, making it all the more difficult to get justice for the innocent in this case. Thank you for joining me today. It is always a pleasure to have you as a listener. I appreciate you all so much. If you want to know how you can support the podcast, please visit the new site. Follow me on Instagram. Don't forget to take the polls that I will have for you on stories today. I want to get a feel for what you guys think about this case, and that's the best way for me to get that information from you. Um, If you have a case suggestion, DM me. I would love to add it to the schedule. Um, So far, you guys have given me so many incredible recommendations. I'm booked out until like mid-April, so thank you guys so much. Please keep doing that. I love it. And like always, join me next week when together we'll discover... Did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? Mm